This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 176, Escape. I'm Hal Hammonds, and I am a Citizen of Heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in this week. Maybe it's the fact that I'm fresh off a short staycation with Tracy, an experience I'll likely discuss in a later podcast. In any case, this week I'm in the mood to talk about the pros and cons of getting away from it all. We'll talk about the folly of attempts to escape from an angry God, the problems that come with getting away with your crimes, one of the most annoying songs I know, both musically and philosophically, and a real-world adventure that turned out to be considerably less than that. Let's start with what I've been preaching. At last report, as of August 7th, 2022, Mount Kilauea in Hawaii is still erupting. If you have a Hawaiian vacation planned in the next few weeks, don't necessarily change your plans on account of Kilauea. The lava flow is contained within the crater of the volcano and likely to remain such. If somehow it were to escape from the crater, that doesn't necessarily bode poorly either. This is in a region of the Hawaii Volcanoes National Park that's been closed to the public since 2008. So your chances of running into hot steaming lava is pretty much zero. And even if somehow the lava were to get into a public area, that's not necessarily the end of the world either. Lava flows are pretty slow. You would be able to outpace it, even on foot. But imagine, if you will, Kilauea is erupting, and you run to the furthest reaches of the island, and it's still flowing. And you're on the beach, and it's still flowing. And suddenly you realize there is no place for you to go. Truly a consuming fire situation there. I was thinking about that when I was looking at Hebrews chapter 12 in preparation for this podcast. Starting verse 25, we read, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those who did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This passage is talking about two mountains much larger than Kilauea, the Mount Sinai of the Old Testament times where Moses brought the people to meet God, a terrifying experience certainly, and Mount Zion, not the literal mount in Jerusalem, but rather the spiritual dwelling of God, the church of Jesus Christ. If it was a terrifying thing to meet with God then, why wouldn't it be a terrifying thing to meet with God now? And those who reject the salvation that God offers through Jesus Christ, and certainly those who embrace the salvation and then for whatever reason turn their back on it, these ones are facing the fury of a God who is described as a consuming fire. And there is no place you can run from this fire. As the writer tells us earlier in the book, in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse number 3, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Jesus himself describes these rebels in his day in Matthew 23, 33 as a brood of vipers and says, how will you escape the sentence of hell? 
Romans chapter 2, verse 3, Paul says that there is going to be no escape for these ones who have condemned others and yet live the same kind of ungodly, rebellious lives that the Gentiles did. Now, if you're out there saying, surely there's got to be some good news to all of this, there is. There is escape from the wrath of God through Jesus. In Joel chapter 2, he speaks of this punishment coming from God upon his people, both in the short term and also prophetically in the long term. He calls it the day of the Lord, and these remarkable things are going to accompany it. And of course, we immediately go to Acts chapter 2, where Peter says that these things were spoken of, at least in part, with regard to the coming of the gospel era. And it is in that time that the ones who call upon the name of the Lord will be delivered. But he goes on to say, For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. The punishment coming upon the city of Jerusalem and the Jewish nation in the first century was a terror to the people who lived there. Jesus warns them about it in Matthew chapter 24. The wrath of God is being poured out against a nation that has, over the centuries, continued to rebel against him. But there will be those who escape. And I don't doubt that, at least in part, that is literally true, that Christians living in Jerusalem and surrounding areas remembered Jesus' prophecy and were able to escape the wrath of the Romans. But in a much greater sense, this punishment coming upon the people of God is the same thing that had come in Joel's day and in the days of the judges and even in Moses' day. People continually rebelling against their God and God chastening them for it. In those days, as much as the wrath of God may burn, there are always those who are able to escape. If we heed the warning, if we listen to what Jesus has to say, escape can be found in him. It cannot be found in denying that the wrath of God is real. It cannot be found in assuming that we are good enough or smart enough or strong enough to endure this wrath. Only by giving ourselves over to Jesus, by calling on his name, can we have any hope of survival. And having survived, having seen this salvation, we hold on to it as tightly as we can. This is what I've been reading. I will admit, Frank W. Abagnale came to my attention by way of Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks. The actual book, Catch Me If You Can, written by Mr. Abagnale, is better than the film made by Tom Hanks. It tells the story of a man who was a career criminal, who evaded the law for year after year, starting when he was a teenager, and eventually winding up with him getting caught in France and sent to prison. The range of Frank's crimes was considerable, but at his core, he was a forger. He faked checks and was extremely good at it. That's why he was hired by the FBI eventually, so that they could track down people who were doing the things that he was doing. You read Catch Me If You Can, and you realize that getting away with your crime, at least temporarily, Maybe the worst thing in the world you could do. We don't usually give thanks to God for not getting away with it. I'm not sure we give thanks to God for getting away with it either now that I think about it. But when we engage in rebellion, and in the short term we continue to escape the consequences of it, we typically pat ourselves on the back 
and embolden ourselves to further and greater rebellion. This is exactly what God is trying to keep us from doing. This is why sin has short-term consequences. Not always, not in every situation, certainly, but oftentimes. Now, we have the blessing as the people of God of looking at this from a different perspective than the atheists. We have not gone as far as they have. We still acknowledge the existence of God. We still acknowledge the existence of sin. We acknowledge that we ourselves are not what we ought to be. And we try to get better. At least I certainly hope we try to get better. Because we know that the consequences we suffer in the short term are part of God's learning curve. A couple of stories from David's life come to mind. In 2 Samuel chapter 24, for instance, David has polled the nation to find out how large his army is. And when he realizes the error of his ways, he repents. But God says, you're going to have to suffer for this. And a plague comes upon the nation. And he offers up this offering at the threshing floor of Arama. And verse 24 is oftentimes quoted, and rightfully so, when David says there, I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. A sacrifice must be offered. A penalty must be paid. Similarly, in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, you know the Bathsheba story where David sees what he wants. He goes out and gets it, oblivious of any kind of consequences, apparently. And then the consequences come. David is running away from his problems, trying to escape the consequences for his mistake. And it seems in the short term that he has. But God knows. And he informs Nathan. Nathan reaches out to David. Thou art the man. And in Psalm 51, David acknowledges his shortcoming, begs for this clean heart from God, knowing that he is in desperate need of forgiveness. Getting caught is a blessing. It's not a curse. Maybe you've been in a situation with a spouse, with church elders, maybe even with the authorities, where you're engaged in a pattern of behavior that was rebellious, that was sinful, you knew it for whatever reason you didn't want to stop, and then it's put to a stop by some authority figure. And the feeling that comes upon us is not sorrow, it's relief, because we know this is not who we want to be. Sometimes we need to get caught so that we can be shaken, so that we can be brought to repentance. I hope that parents can take this lesson. Oftentimes, parents are obsessed, it seems, with keeping consequences from falling upon their children from the mistakes that the children have made. God allows us to suffer consequences so that we can learn. We need to be suffering consequences ourselves. We need to be teaching our children about consequences. Not so that we will suffer, but so that we will learn. We want to change. And with God's help, we will change. Hopefully, before it's not too late. If you like pina coladas, this is what I've been hearing. All right, that is all of Escape Parenthesis, the Pina Colada song that I intend to subject you to here today. Partly that is because I don't want to run afoul of the copyright people, but mostly it's because I can't take any more than that. And if you don't know the song very well, it's just as well, because the four measures that I just played to you, that is the entire song. That's all there is in the song. It's repeated four times in every verse. It's repeated four times more in the chorus. It's repeated in the bridge. For 40 years, I've been listening to this song. 
And every time I listen to it, I think I despise it a little bit more. Now, if you don't know the song, you may be assuming, well, surely the lyrics must be worthy of something if it's going to be played for 40 years in elevators and radio stations and jukeboxes and whatever else. Surely the lyrics must be truly inspired. Well, I have bad news for you. The lyrics are probably even less inspired than the music. The Pina Colada song is about a man who is dissatisfied in his relationship. He has a steady girlfriend, but it's not really doing it for him. And he reads an ad in the personals where some woman is seeking someone who likes pina coladas and walking in the rain and a lot of that really highfalutin kind of stuff, the things that intellectual people really strive for in their relationships. And so he decides to answer the ad, come with me and escape, escape the drudgery of life, escape their current relationships. We'll come to find out that the person who wrote the ad is his girlfriend. And they both get a chuckle out of this. And I didn't realize that you liked all of these things, which indicates that the shallow relationship that they were suffering in was even more shallow than they realized. Not only are they looking for extremely simplistic and uninteresting and irrelevant things in their relationship, they're not even finding those little things in the relationship that's right in front of them. Uh, Don't get me started. Anyway, the idea of contenting yourself with something shallow That may work for six-year-olds. That may even work for 12-year-olds. But once we get to be adults, surely we want something more than that, don't we? What kind of a person do you want in your life, and why do you want them in your life? Because they're good-looking? Because they smell nice? Because they're tall? Because they're thin? Or do you want someone in your life who's going to enhance your life? Someone who is an intellectual challenge. Someone who brings out the best in you. A person of character. Surely those are the things that we truly value. I'm not suggesting the other things are completely irrelevant. Although I might say that drinking pina coladas is irrelevant. But they pale in significance to the deeper things. And this could easily turn into a segment about dating or marriage or something like that. But really I want to talk about our relationship with Jesus. Because I fear that there are a lot of my brethren who are absolutely content with the shallowest of relationships with Jesus. They don't have a deep bond. They don't want a deep bond. They want a Jesus who will make them feel good in their low points. They want someone to answer their prayers in desperate situations. But they're not looking for a life partner who will elevate them, who will change them, transform them in a positive kind of way. In fact, that's exactly what they don't want. They want someone who will allow them to exist at the lowest possible level of accomplishment in a spiritual sense. I would like to think that any of us would grow out of that in a carnal relationship. There are jokes about boys hanging out with their their boy buddies into their 20s, 30s, 40s, or whatever, just because they drink beer together or watch sports together or whatever it happens to be that guys do. But surely at some point in our adulthood, we realize friends should be more than that. And certainly our relationship with Jesus should be more than that. 
Listen to what Paul says about it in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I might gain Christ. Do you think that Paul is suffering the loss of all things for someone he, he just hangs out with on Sunday morning? That's not what Paul wants. That's not what Paul wants for us. Romans chapter 12, and verse 1 and 2. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You are not where God wants you to be. Jesus is going to take you there. It's going to be a process. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be a challenge. It's going to rob you of certain things in your life, just like adulthood does. And those who embrace the idea of adulthood welcome this process. We don't want to live like 16-year-olds or 14-year-olds or 8-year-olds. We may joke about it every once in a while, but that's not what we want. And we would never go back to that lifestyle if we could. Why would we accept spiritual mediocrity in Jesus? Why would we accept spiritual infancy in Jesus? Yes, his burden is light, but there is a burden. Yes, his yoke is easy, but there is a yoke. And for people who want a true, uplifting, connected, lifelong experience with Jesus, this is a good thing. We're not escaping from drudgery. We're not escaping from pain and inconvenience, trying to embrace some kind of new and exciting lifestyle that's good simply because it's new and exciting. We want a life partner. Our life is hidden with Christ in God, Paul writes in Colossians 3, verse 3. That's what we want. We want to be tied up in all things into Jesus. And we will not be satisfied with anything less than that. This is what I've been playing. So I robbed a bank a few weeks ago. I think it was a bank. Might have just been regular people. I don't know. It was on a stagecoach anyway. There was gold there. We took it. And and then my buddies got lost or ran from the law or got eaten by zombies. I forget exactly what it was. Anyway, the gold wasn't with them. It wasn't with me. It was tied up in some kind of prison of traps or whatever. And I had to shoot some rats and find some cards and play a hand of poker. Anyway, I, and I had 20 minutes to do it. And if I didn't do that, then the goal would be gone forever. And the Pinkertons would catch us or Elliot Ness or Wyatt Earp or whoever it was, was going to get me. And we pulled it off by we, I'm talking about my gang, uh, Tracy, the girls, Taylor's husband, we pulled it off. Good for us. Yay. My first escape room. You may detect from my tone that uh, I wasn't especially enthralled by the experience. And I guess I wasn't. It was fine. It was okay. The girls are big fans of escape rooms. They've done a whole bunch of them. It seemed like our kind of thing. We like puzzles. We like games. We like getting out on a Saturday afternoon. So why not? I think the problem for me with the escape room was I knew it was fake. And of course, you know, it's fake. I mean, how could it possibly not be fake? We're not idiots, right? But maybe I'm getting to the point 
warning, fuddy-duddy alert, in my mid-50s where suspension of disbelief just doesn't seem to be worth the effort. If an 18-year-old, 25-year-old wants to do an escape room, great. That's fine. I'm certainly not trying to rain on anybody's parade. But to me, it seemed completely and totally artificial. Now, if I was going to get a real cache of gold by getting through all these puzzles in 20 minutes, or even if I was going to get my admission money back, well, that might be a different thing. If there were real consequences, then I'd put in some real energy, some real enthusiasm. But it's not real. And because it wasn't real, and because I prefer all things being equal to live in the land of the real, I think I just had trouble engaging in the entire experience. You do you. You want to do escape rooms? More power to you. You'll probably see my daughters there. But it reminded me a little bit of the struggles that I have, and I know the struggles that other people have, with regard to spiritual realities beyond our senses, beyond our vision. It's been my philosophy for a long time that people who say they believe in God, say they believe in Jesus, say they believe in the Bible, but make no effort to engage with God on a spiritual level, don't really believe after all. If you truly believe in the Bible, you have to believe in hell. And if you believe in hell, how can you possibly sleep at night if you're not right with God? Jesus himself says, Matthew chapter 5, verse 29 and 30, If your right hand makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. God is giving us warnings. We can and we will escape eternal damnation if we give ourselves to his things. The word escape comes up again in 2 Peter chapter 3 in an interesting context. Verse 3, know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Now notice this in verse number 5. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice. That by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the world was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded by water. It escapes their notice, he says. The reason people don't believe in the destruction of all things at the end of time is because they don't really believe that it was destroyed the first time. God did it once. This is not a matter of whether God would or would not destroy the world. If properly provoked, he's already destroyed the world. And then he goes on to say in verse number eight, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. And of course, he's not saying here that God can't tell the difference or that when he mentions a thousand years or a day to us that he doesn't care which way we interpret that. He's saying, you may have forgotten about this, that God doesn't look at time the same way that we do. Do not let this escape your notice, friends. There are plenty of people out there doing whatever they want to do, however much of it they want to do, completely oblivious to eternal consequences. They're oblivious because they are choosing to allow it to escape their notice. They are looking at something else. They're looking at the world. I urge you, look at heaven. Look at God. Look at Jesus. 
God has empowered you to escape this life. And a tremendous reward is waiting for those who do. So do as Peter urges us in 2 Peter 1 verse 10. Be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. And do it quickly. Time's running out. You've been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.alhammonds.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.